Hey there, it's Michelle Pilipich. I am a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, and your host of this podcast, Simply Intuitive. On the show, we are talking about all things intuitive eating, active living, and breaking down what's true versus what's a myth in the wellness world so that you can focus on simple and sustainable ways to actually improve your health. If you're feeling overwhelmed by all of the health information floating around and you just want to know what to do to feel your best, you're in the right place. Not only are specific tips coming your way, but you can also count on conversations that will challenge your perspective on what health really means. So I hope you'll stick around for many episodes to come. But for now, let's get into today's show. Hi, Fatima. Welcome. Hi. How are you doing today? I am good. How about you? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining me. I'm excited to chat. Me too. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Great. So let's start off with you just introducing yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, so my name is Fatima Jivunji Shakir. I identify as cisgendered female and use she, her pronouns. Um, I am an eating disorder therapist based in New York City, and I work with people um, who are 15 and above, um, really working on topics like eating disorders, disordered eating, body image. Um, and I specialize in working with BIPOC folks. Um, I identify as South Asian and Muslim, so I really love working with uh, people with similar backgrounds as well. Awesome. Yeah. And that is a lot of what we're going to talk about today, your specialty in your cultural expertise um, and really just broadening our views on like what, what eating disorders look like, how body image affects people outside of what most people might think and see on social media. So I think that's a good place to start diving in. Um, when you talk to clients about body image or just experience, you know, thoughts and concerns and stressors and whatever in your own life, what are the things that come up relating to body image outside of just your weight? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think I want to start by first defining like what body image is and then kind of jumping into like how it can extend beyond weight. Um, so body image has four components. So one is perceptual, right? So how you see your body. Then there's affective, which is how you feel about your body. Um, there's cognitive, which is the thoughts that you have in relation to your body. And then there's behavioral, which is the things that you do in as a result of the other three, right? So do you engage in exercise? What kind of clothing do you wear? Um, do you wear makeup? What, how do you eat in relation to the other ways in which you're seeing your body? And so oftentimes, pe oftentimes people think about body image as being about like weight, shape, and size, um, but there's so much more to it because your experience in the world impacts your sense of like, what your body is and what your body is meant to do. And so I think about this a lot through the lens of like culture and colonialism. So one of the like things that's always stuck with me is that saying that like the sun never set on the British empire. Right. And that's because, um, Great Britain conquered so many lands around the world. And so um, the British were historically Caucasian um, and Christian identifying, right? And so when they would go to these conquered lands, um, they often became the rulers, the elites. And so 
people who wanted to emulate that status wanted to also look like them, right? And so colorism is a huge part of body image as well. So for folks who identify as BIPOC, um, a lot of cultures, especially mine being a South Asian person, um, values having lighter skin as being associated with being better, being um, more worthy, being more of an eligible like marriage partner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think skin color can play a huge role in that. And then also body hair, right? Both in terms of like texture and also where it's located. So again, Caucasians were associated with having lighter hair color, blonde, brown hair. Um, so this kind of became seen as, as the ideal. So you'll see a lot of folks, um, I've, I've noticed in my culture, people who will dye their hair, who will add highlights to have more like brown tones, maybe dye their hair blonde because it, it aligns more um, with that ideal. And similarly, so for South Asian folks specifically, we tend to have darker, more black hair. Um, and so that's also more visible than on the body right. versus light hair is less visible and so there's a lot more like body hair removal practices like from like areas like the arms midsection chest area um, that might be less common amongst um, Caucasian folks and then also eye color right so we tend to have like more dark brown black eyes um, and so I'll often see a lot of people wearing color changing eye contacts to again really align with the western body ideal yeah. How did this affect you growing up? Did you experience like those desires to change your body in those ways? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think when you're surrounded by so many people who don't look like you and it feels like they're the majority, you naturally want to fit in. You want to be similar. Um, and so I think as a kid and as an adolescent, I really felt that sense of like, wanting to fit in, even down to the kind of jewelry that I would wear. So South Asian jewelry is very different in terms of like its detail, the kind of like gold, for example, that's used looks very different from what you find in the U.S. And so like when my mom would want me to wear certain kinds of jewelry, like I wouldn't want to wear it because it didn't look like the kind of jewelry that my friends would wear. And so for a long time, I even rejected that. And it was only as I became an adult that I could really embrace and admit that I actually really (laughs) liked my cultural jewelry. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like your mom at least was more in touch with kind of connected to her own culture. So Mm -hmm. where did most of the messaging for you come from to be different? Like, were there other people in your family who were trying to fit in more with those Caucasian ideals? I think it was a mix. Like there were some Caucasian ideals that I would see family members internalize other ones that they, they would reject. I think in my generation, so like amongst like siblings, cousins, friends, I think there was more internalization of different parts of that Western culture. Right. And so one example I can think of is like, uh, piercings. So in South Asian culture, historically, like having a nose piercing was a really culturally normal thing. Mm-hmm. And so I remember like a lot of us as kids getting them, like my mom wanting me and my sister to have mm-hmm. a nose piercing. But at that time, it wasn't like considered cool in Western culture to have one. So I really didn't want one. Yeah. And in recent years, as that's shifted and more people are having it now, like, I mean, I don't have my nose piercing anymore. But when I did, people were like, oh, that's that's really cool. Like, 
and for me, it was a part of a different culture that was now, now sort of felt like it was being, um, taken over by, by Western society. Yeah. Interesting. So how that kind of flips as like people just pick and choose kind of different parts Mm -hmm. of different cultures to be like fashionable almost. Mm -hmm. Eyebrows are another like really interesting one too, because historically like South Asians tend to have like thicker eyebrows. And in the early 2000s, there was a trend for having like really thin eyebrows. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so you see a lot of folks with thicker eyebrows were thinning them out and now it's kind of become in again. Right. And there's sort of that cultural appropriation um, of like what an eyebrow should look like that that's happened in in the U S. So how did you, or do you communicate these things? Like, let's say you are partaking in something that has become trendy, but is actually connected to your culture, like the nose ring, for example, is that something that you would use to start a conversation to like educate people when they were just saying, Oh, that's cool. Because it was quote unquote cool at the time. I think when I was younger, I didn't have like the language or the knowledge to be able to do that. Um, I think nowadays I do a lot more of that just because I, I've been able to understand it and know how to articulate and express that, um, to other people. So definitely do. (laughs) Yeah. If somebody is struggling to find the language and articulation for themselves, what would you recommend to people who want to be able to explain more of their cultural practices? Yeah, I think the first thing I would encourage is like talking about it amongst other people who share your identity to see what are other people's like views on it? How do they talk about it? And having that conversation together, I think can help you also think about how you want to articulate it to somebody who doesn't understand that cultural practice or that cultural norm. Um, because really that practice is going to allow you to, to really find your way in how you want to express it. And then I think the other thing I encourage people to think about is like, what does this practice mean to you? Right. So there might be things that like I've picked up on given my own lived experience, but like you may have picked up on something different or you might think about something in a different way. And so really sitting down to reflect on like, what, what meaning does this hold for me? And can I express that to the people who are pointing it out to me, I think is so much more important than kind of like broad statements about like, well, this is what this is, or that's what that is. Um, Because lived experience intersects with all of our other identities as well, right? So religion, age, gender. And so really only you can vocalize what your individual experience has been like. Right, right. It's so true. And those are really, really good tips. And touching on what you just mentioned, gender, religion, these other components, um, especially, you know, you mentioned having a lot of knowledge about Muslim religion. Mm -hmm. What are some of the religious norms, practices, um, just aspects that have affected your own body image or that you see in your clients and their connection with body image? Yeah. So one of the things that always comes to mind in in relation to this is like the type of religious clothing. Um, So, you know, different Islamic sects kind of operate differently. But in in the one that I grew up in, 
um, when a female started menstruating, she became considered like a woman within the religion. And so there's like a whole ceremony that happens to like initiate you into womanhood. With that comes a change in the kind of clothing that you're also wearing. Oh, wow. So when you're considered a child, um, you're still wearing like clothing within the mosque that's like covered, like it's pretty conservative. It covers your head, covers your body. Um, But when you become a woman, that clothing, in my opinion, um, becomes even more covered. And in Islam, the idea is that once you are menstruating, you become eligible for marriage, right? Like you can rear a child. Um, And only people who are unmarriageable others are allowed to see your hair. So people like your parents, your siblings, other women can see your hair. People who you could potentially marry cannot see your hair and therefore your head should be covered at all times. Um, Other parts of the body are also covered and it tends to be very loose clothing that doesn't really define like your body shape. So there's a lot of covering of areas like the breast, the butt area. Um, And I think it's the intention behind it is really supposed to be protective of female identifying folks. But I think what I've seen amongst the people that I know is that sometimes it can feel like you're supposed to shrink yourself, right? Like your personality, your internal sense of self is not welcome in that environment um, and that you should be really minimized. And so that can lead to the disordered eating practices because then you might try to control your body even more so that it's even less visible when you are wearing that clothing. Mm. That's so interesting because I hear a lot of clients struggle with body image and wanting to lose weight, especially, you know, now we're speaking in the summer and Mm -hmm. so many people struggle with wearing less clothing, showing more of their body and wanting to shrink. And so even on the opposite end of the spectrum, being more covered can have that same effect, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then also the less like the less of you that there physically is, the less someone can see your shape, right? So if you're somebody, for example, who um, like has a a prominent chest, even if you're wearing clothing that covers that, people might still be able to like make out the shape of your chest through the clothing. So if you have a smaller chest, it's less visible and kind of, again, can lead to that disordered eating as you're trying to to change your body shape. Mm -hmm. So how do you coach people through this? If someone is, you know, living in that religion, identifying with that um, and wanting to engage in those practices, or maybe they're unsure whether or not they want to engage in this type of dress, what are the things that someone can do to kind of reclaim their body image and relationship with food while simultaneously, I guess, probably deciding whether or not they want to continue with these, I don't know if rules is the right word, but guidelines, whatever it is. Um, And just like, how do you help people navigate that process? Yeah. So I think the number one thing is holding space, right? So oftentimes what I find is that the clients that I work with are environments where it might not feel safe for them to explore their conflicting thoughts around it, or maybe express like disagreement with certain practices or confusion around practices. And so a lot of what I do is one, hold space and 
And my hope is that it feels safe for clients to be able to vocalize all the thoughts that they have, regardless of where they fall on the spectrum to, to really process how these things are impacting them. Because I think until you have space to do so, it can really be hard to figure out like what your values are and where you fall on this and also how you want to practice or identify with um, these different parts of, of your life. Um, so I think that's the first thing is with and withholding space, I think also comes holding space for grief, right? Grief of expectations that maybe you've had of your body, of yourself, holding space for grief of like of how that's changing and maybe how that's going to change your relationship with people. Um, and alongside really connecting clients to resources where they can feel a sense of support, right? It's so important to find your tribe. And a lot of times people will feel really alone. Like I'm the only one who thinks like this. I feel so alone. I don't know who to turn to. And so I think support groups, Facebook groups, especially Instagram accounts can be such a useful way for people to feel a sense of connection. And like, they are not the only ones who are exploring where they fall in, in all of these identities. Right. Yeah. So what did that exploration look like for you? Do you have family members who do dress conservatively? Did you feel pressure to, you know, follow all of that? And how did you determine like where you wanted to Mm -hmm. on the spectrum? Yeah, I think for me personally, there were certain things that like my family had expectations about and certain things that, that they didn't. So when it came to the clothing, like they were really okay with me wearing Western clothing, but they had preferences around like how revealing that clothing was, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of my personal individuation from my family happened like when I went to college and really just had some time to explore without having, having to feel so concerned about how, what I was doing, what I was wearing would directly negatively impact my family because I wasn't in the same environment as them. And then I think also, you know, finding friends and family members who I could talk to. So I had some cousins, um, some aunts and uncles who really created a safe space for me to like vocalize where I was confused, where I wasn't sure where I aligned. Um, And that became, I think, really pivotal for me in in navigating my own identity. Yeah. I mean, I think like you said, finding your tribe, finding your people, that's that's key for anyone figuring these things out is having a sounding board, whether it's a provider or family or friends or even an online community. Absolutely. That's a great tip. So when you are helping clients work through body image, I I know I have spoken about kind of body positivity versus body neutrality and what are we working towards? What do you see as the end goal of body image work? That's a tough question. (laughs) (laughs) Trick question. Not that it's intended to be, but I think the question of is there an end goal is also valid. Yeah. Well, the reason I, I feel like this is a tough question is because I think in my ideal world, this wouldn't be something that we're talking about because body neutrality would be such a norm that we wouldn't be thinking about positivity needing to develop neutrality because it would be the norm, right? Right. Right. And so 
I think that's where I'm like, I just wish it was. <laughs> yeah. And really, I guess at some point it is because, you know, a baby is not born hating their body. They that's don't. True. I mean, I think they don't think about it. I guess I, I'm not in the head of a newborn, but um, most people can point to an age and an event or a comment that made them start thinking negatively about their body. So mm-hmm. you have that neutral baseline and then it's like, okay, once that has been thrown off course, where do we go next? Yeah, no, that that's a really good point, right? That it really is something that develops through socialization. Mm-hmm. I guess taking into account like where things currently are, I think what I would view as the end goal is having body neutrality in so many different domains of the world, right? So I think right now there's a huge movement towards like thinking about body neutrality in relationships, right? So um, not commenting on people's bodies when you're in social settings, et cetera. But I think that there's a more, I don't think like capitalism has like matched up to that yet. So like a lot of, um, organizations, for example, will still partner with insurance companies and say like, okay, you need to do a body, like a biometrics exam um, to get like reduced insurance rates, right? Where like height, weight, BMI is still incorporated into that. Like a lot of companies still do like the, all these like weight loss programs. Like it's still really incorporated into like capitalism and work culture and, and school culture, right? Like, right kind of promote like healthy eating, not having access to certain kinds of foods in schools for kids. And so I think like, because we spend so much time at school and at work, once it really gets ingrained into those environments, I think there's going to be so much more of a shift towards like large scale body neutrality. So I think that would be the hope that it's like all encompassing. Right. More of that systemic change. And it's interesting. Somebody asked me recently if I think that things are changing in terms of body image and how it's presented in media and everything. And I didn't really know how to answer because on the one hand, yes, we see different um, clothing stores, online retailers showing a wider variety of models for their clothing. And there are, you know, influencers and larger bodies on social media. And so there is definitely a subset of people leaning into promoting all sizes and there's also a lot of toxicity still out there (laughs) like everything you mentioned that still is very weight focused in work and schools as well as just you know still parts of the fashion industry social media is a whole thing so it's so hard to know you know are we moving in the right direction but I definitely also think that neutrality is the goal. And I always tell people, you know, a positive body image is actually just not thinking about your body and being able to live your life. Yeah. And I think like, like you said, it's, I think in some places there's like a huge movement and in others there isn't, right? Like weight discrimination is only illegal in one state in the United States. So technically- Yeah. So technically speaking, right, like if you're in a larger body and um, you're working for a company and let's say the chair like isn't really appropriate for your body size, 
Well, technically, a company could discriminate against you and say, like, well, we're not going to pay for you to get a different chair. Mm, yeah. Because, that's, I mean, it's, it's legal for them to discriminate in this way. It's so terrible. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I will notice at times a doctor's office waiting room that has a variety of different sizes in, of seat, different types of seating. And I'll notice that and think, wow, that's so great. But I'm thinking now I probably don't notice when there's a lack of those options. Mm. You know, so it, it's so split. And the other thing that's so tricky, which I think shows up a lot in school, and I spoke about this on another um, episode with Nicole Groman about just how things have become so polarized. And some of it is because this, like, you know, in quotes, war on obesity and all of the messaging towards the average American and about the standard American diet is so, so different from what someone with disordered eating typically mm-hmm. needs to hear. So those school and work like systems and programs can be so damaging unintentionally. Yeah. And I think that really ties into like aging as well. Right. So like, and thinking about even like medical doctors, beauty brands, like everything is about like staying young, staying fit. Right. Right. And so things like if you start developing wrinkles, losing muscle mass, like those are seen as being really negative things in in U.S. society. And like, I think that also puts people at risk for disordered eating as they're aging. Um, Totally. And it's, it seems to be a uniquely American thing, which is so sad that not only is the appearance of aging looked down upon, but even just older people in general are not valued as part of society as much Mm -hmm. as in other cultures, which then contributes even more to that negativity of the appearance. Mm -hmm. And there's so much ageism. Right. Especially within like the context of like corporate America. And I think that then ties into the disordered eating piece because if you look young, right, if like your your appearance is the first thing that someone sees about you when you walk into an interview or you show up for an online interview. And so if you look young, there's going to be a bias towards them being more likely to hire you. And then that factors into like youth being kind of the standard of, of beauty, right? And so people engaging in body change behaviors, like using Botox, wearing makeup, coloring their hair, um, which again, we might not necessarily see in our standard view of like body image, but it's such a key part of what body image can look like, especially as you're aging. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there, there is so much ageism and even the idea of I need to look I mean yes you can look younger looking like fit is Mm -hmm. not even a thing you know fit doesn't have an appearance it's only function and yeah that that is just a very unfortunate view and then all of these things that people engage in to change their appearance it becomes a very fine line, I think, with what's disordered and what's not. So how do you have people kind of think through that? Because maybe someone is listening thinking, well, I dye my hair, but I just like it. Is that bad? Or I like my makeup. Do I have to not wear it? Am I setting myself up for failure? So 
how do you differentiate what is preference? And this is so similar to relationship with mm-hmm. food, right? Like what's a true preference versus what is di- a disordered rule? Yeah. The question I always ask clients to think about is like, how does doing this make you feel? Mm-hmm. Right. So if it makes you feel good, if it's a hobby, if it's something that you enjoy, um, then there's nothing wrong with it. Right. But if you're doing it because you feel like, oh, I have to dye my hair because I'm going to a wedding tomorrow and I don't want to look old. That's a sign that what's happening there is like internalization of standards of beauty, right? Especially youthism. And that's when I might consider like ask someone to consider like, okay, well, what would it mean to look older, right? Like why, why is that a bad thing? Um, and so I think that's where the delineation really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a great check-in, just seeing how, how you feel. Yeah. I yeah. think another thought that comes to mind, Michelle, is the idea of like individualism, right? So the U.S. is such an individualistic nation, right? It's like, it's all about me and I have to be self-sufficient. I have to be able to take care of myself. And so I think when we think about concepts like aging, it's really hard because as somebody ages, typically you might need more support, right? You might need someone to help take care of you. You might need help with tasks that maybe when you were younger were a lot easier for you to do. And and maybe you could do them more quickly. And so because we're taught that like you shouldn't need others, you should be self-sufficient, it can put a lot of pressure on people to be able to like that, like, that their body has to be able to do certain things. They have to move a certain way, eat a certain way, so that they don't need other people. And that's so contradictory because especially as you get older, you need such a strong sense of community, right? Um, I mean, we need community at all ages, but I think as people are aging, maybe not working anymore, that community becomes extra important. Right, it's easier to lose and it's part of what keeps you healthy you know and Mm -hmm. this is something I talk about all the time this definition of health and really expanding it to a more holistic view so sure you can do everything in your power to be able to cook for yourself your whole life but if you don't have those strong relationships the nutrient dense food can only do so much for health right you need it all right it might give you nutrients but it might not give you connection Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And the, uh, so the last thing I wanted to talk about with you is I think very much related to this loss of connection and that is social media and social media just messes with people on so many levels, especially body image. So what do you see as the main impact of social media on body image? Yeah. So I think this really, from from my perspective, stems from self-discrepancy theory, right? So um, self-discrepancy theory talks about how there's three, like, versions of yourself. So there's the actual self, which is who you really are. There's the ideal self, which is how you would like to be. And then there's the ought self, which is who you think you should be. And so when we think about social media and how there's often... Um, It's mainly thin, white, young, cisgendered folks um, that are represented in the media. It creates that 
divide between this is who I am and this is who I think I should be because media is telling me I should be like this thin, white, young, cisgendered person, right? Right. And so when that divide increases, um, the natural human tendency is to want to close that gap because you don't want to see yourself as falling short. And so that's where a lot of these, you know, uh, body changing behaviors, beauty changing behaviors really come into place as people are trying to close that that gap, right? And so I think what can be so helpful is, you know, interacting with media where you are represented, where your different identities are represented. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you identify as an indoor person, maybe watching shows like Grace and Frankie, right, which mm-hmm. highlights the relationship of two el- elder women. Um, if you identify as South Asian, watching shows where you are represented can make such a huge difference in in feeling that gap and that need to change yourself. Yeah, that's a great idea. And do you have any favorite social media accounts like Instagram influencers that are really more outside the box of the like cultural stereotypical norm? That's a really good question. Yeah, I don't know like the names of the accounts right off the top of my head. So give me. <laughs> you can send me some good ones, and I'll I'll put links. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. I will do that because I I don't I'm not great at remembering people's handles. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm the opposite, and like I know their handle, but I don't know their actual name, <laughs> which is so bad. <laughs> yeah, but I think diversifying your feed, as well as I heard someone recently say. Um, that your diet is not just food, it's everything you consume. So mm-hmm. TV shows, podcasts, music, social media, all of that. Um, that really, such a good point. Yeah, really curating that to be what you want to see and what's going to feel most relatable is a great tip. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that's Because <laughs> <laughs> we take in so much in different forms. Yeah, and how like nourishing yourself is not just about food right right absolutely nourishing tv shows can that be a thing that can be a thing right <laughs> like the books you're reading accounts you're following yeah. people you're spending time with oh my gosh I'm gonna like use that <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah so you can send me all your faves and I will I will link those absolutely um so is there anything else we didn't touch on about this body image conversation outside of weight and other things that might be impacting someone's body image that they're maybe not paying attention to and how they can make that a more positive experience? Yeah. Um, I think gender is another big one that um, I don't think we touched on as mm-hmm. much the conversation, right? So Body weight and shape is often an indicator of sex, but for folks who are questioning gender identity, controlling shape and weight through disordered eating behaviors might be a way of controlling gender expression, Um, but there's also so much more beyond this, right? Um, So I'm thinking, for example, like depth of voice, right? So we often associate deeper voices with more male identifying people. Um, kind of the de- definition in, in uh, facial features, in, in muscle tone. Um, and so for folks who don't identify on that binary that we 
often implement. Um, there can be other pieces that really intersect with their gender identity, their identity of their body as well. Um, I'm also thinking about like facial hair could be another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's really interesting is again, thinking about how like colonialism and religion have like impacted our views of like what gender like quote unquote should be. Right? So in India, historically, there have been folks who are called hijras, which are people who don't identify as male or female. So they're often considered like the third gender. Um, And in Hinduism, hijras would often perform like song, dance, and blessings at marriage ceremonies or at the births of babies because they were considered as having a lot of religious power. And yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And with colonialism, when the British um, conquered India, a lot of the British were Christian identifying and believed in gender binaries and they criminalized being hijra mm-hmm. uh, and it like that then impacted like the socioeconomic status right the the livelihood of people who identified as hijras i mean their identity was essentially criminalized right so if this happened in india i'm thinking about all the other lands that the british also colonized and how that has probably created this sense of like the gender binary and really Um, discriminated against folks who don't fall within that right so also just taking into consideration all of those factors all that history the intergenerational trauma that can happen within that um, and also how that can impact people's gender identity and and the parts of their bodies um, that are impacted also by disordered eating beyond like body weight and shape right right that is so cool and so interesting. And I, I also, I read this book, which I think is based on a true story. So it's not fiction, but I don't know if it's entirely nonfiction about a family that has a child questioning his gender mm-hmm. identity. And then they travel to, I forget which country, but another culture and religion that does embrace the fluidity even more. So I bet it is more common in so many other places, which is Mm -hmm. awesome. So if somebody wants to really look into the history of gender and culture and religion and maybe where it has come from in their background, what's a good place to start? So (laughs) I, I feel funny giving this answer, but I often find that Google searching is really helpful. (laughs) Because a lot of, like, what I've learned is, like, I'll Google search, like, these questions. I'll put in, like, a culture, like, gender, and just see what comes up. And then oftentimes that can point you to, like, Instagram accounts, point you to books, to YouTube videos that, like, offer this education, right? That's how I I learned about the history of hijras and and, and discrimination in in India is purely through Google search. (laughs) I mean, that's great. That is a very accessible (laughs) tip. Anything on Google. That's awesome. Great. Yeah. And then people can just follow what is most interesting and relevant to them. Yeah. I often go through like these rabbit holes where I'll read one thing, it points me to something else. And then that's just how you end up gaining information, gaining knowledge, right? About your own identities, about other people's identities. Um, So I think Google is an amazing tool in that way. 
Great. Yeah, you can find everything on Google. <laughs> Google your hearts out. Awesome. So we have lots of great tips here. Um, lots of thought-provoking insights about body image, and I hope people will spend some time thinking about everything we've discussed and how it's relating to their own body image. So if anyone wants to keep up with you, follow along, hear more of what you're doing, or potentially work with you, where can people find you? Yeah. So on Instagram, you can find me at your South Asian therapist. And I am also offering um, virtual therapy sessions for folks who are living in New York um, through Connison Psychological Services. If you follow, you can always message me on Instagram and connect through there. Or you can check out the website. Um, and I also offer couples therapy. And so if um, you know, you're, you or your partner are struggling with body image, intimacy, the disordered eating is really impacting the relationship. Um, I'd also love to work with you and your partner or partners um, on exploring that as well. Amazing. Great resource. So I will link everything um, so people can find you easily. And thank you again so much for coming on and having this conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Michelle. It's been great. And there you have it. That is our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it and had some good takeaways. If you did, I would love to hear what's resonating for you. Send me a DM on Instagram or share the episode to your stories and tag me so that I can see that you're listening and hopefully loving it. You can also share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy it and spread some intuitive eating love to everyone around you. As always, five-star ratings and reviews are so appreciated, so you can drop me one of those. Be sure to also check out the show notes for all the links that I mentioned and more information on myself and my nutrition private practice. Other than all that, I hope you have a great day and a great week, and I will catch you in the next episode.